0: If you'd open your Bibles, please, to Revelation 16 tonight. Revelation 16. I want to begin reading at verses 12 to 16, which say this, The sixth angel poured out his bowl on the great river the Euphrates, and its water was dried up so that the way would be prepared for the kings from the east. And I saw coming out of the mouth of the dragon and out of the mouth of the beast, and out of the mouth of the false prophet, three unclean spirits like frogs. For they are spirits of demons, performing signs which go out to the kings of the whole world to gather them together for the war of the great day of God the Almighty. Behold, I'm coming like a thief. Blessed is the one who stays awake and keeps his clothes so that he will not walk about naked, and men will not see his shame. And they gathered them together to the place which in Hebrew is called Har-ma-gedon. Let's pray. Father, thank you so much for your precious word, and we thank you for your people who've come out to partake of it tonight. We pray that you would use our time to use your spirit to minister to the way we think and adjustments we may need to make. We thank you for all the word of God. We thank you that you have the prophetic plan in your hands and you are moving things tonight right toward that conclusion of what we're seeing here. We pray your blessing on our time and on the people who are here. In Jesus' name, amen. One of the things that you often hear people do who don't even necessarily love the Lord or know anything much about God is they bring God into The conversation, especially if it's in a positive way, if it's in a way that talks about God loving and God forgiving, which God is certainly all of that. He's a very gracious God who loves and forgets. But the problem is, people don't have the whole concept of God. And one of the concepts that clearly is revealed in the scriptures is the concept of God's wrath. And when you go through the Bible, you realize God's wrath is very real you learn that God's wrath is just and righteous and true. Whenever God decides to pour out his wrath, he's just in doing it. You also learn that God's wrath is scary. I mean, the kinds of things that we have been looking at in this book of Revelation in the wrath period are scary things. We also learn when we go through the scriptures that God's wrath shows up in both the Old Testament and the New Testament. And the other thing we learn about the wrath of God when we go through the scriptures is that God's wrath is aimed at sin and sinners who have rejected his son. Now when you come to this 16th chapter of Revelation, you're in the finale of the wrath of God. There's never been anything like this that's ever hit the world. There's nowhere in history that you can find what is described in this chapter. And you'll notice that the first verse of the 16th chapter says, I heard a loud voice from the temple saying to the seven angels, Go and pour out on the earth the seven bowls of the wrath of God. And last week we began looking at those bowls of wrath. The first bowl, of course, was the malignant sores and all those who had received the mark of the beast. God actually is going to judge people who are connected to Satan and have received the mark of the beast with a boil that's going to be a malignant, painful boil. They're not going to be able to get any remedy to, no matter how many doctors they try to go to. The second judgment was the sea is turned into blood. We saw that in verse 3. That was the second bowl judgment. And in that bowl judgment, all sea life dies. We can't even begin to imagine what that would be like. We can't begin to imagine what it would be like to just have nothing but death and blood in the sea. The third bowl judgment that was described in verses 4 to 6 was the fresh water judgment, in which God turns fresh water to blood. Now we read that, and I don't think it registers with us. What if you went to get a drink of water and it was blood? Or you were trying to, as Dr. Johnson once said, you turn on a faucet with the idea, I'm going to brush my teeth. And what comes out of the faucet is blood. I mean, we don't even think in these terms. But God said, this is what I'm going to do. You reach this point in the tribulation, this is exactly what I'm going to do. Now, the fourth bowl judgment that we saw last time was the scorching sun. He literally, according to verse 8, is going to let men burn up with a scorching sun. I mean, the description of what's going to happen there is it scorches them with fire and it's fierce heat. And yet, in the midst of all of that, they still do not in any way think that we need to get right with God. Then the fifth judgment was a judgment of darkness. Darkness where people are sitting in total darkness. We saw that, and they're gnawing their tongues because of their pain. That's what verse 10 tells us. And then you come to that thing in verse 12, where the sixth angel goes out, and he drives up the Euphrates. Now, we learn from the book of Daniel that shortly before the Antichrist comes to an end, and Jesus Christ is going to come back and bring him to an end, that this Antichrist is going to be living in Israel, and he's going to hear some troubling news coming out of the east. Daniel chapter 11, verses 44 and 45 teach us that he will hear troubling news coming out of the east that will greatly disturb him. And when he hears this news that there's something going on in the east, these nations are starting to link together and they're on the move and he's going to probably get wind of the fact that the Euphrates has dried up and he gets word of this, it's going to disturb him to the point that it'll catapult him into a vendetta of final wrath. That's what Daniel tells us. I mean, he's going to go on an all-out vendetta to destroy. And undoubtedly, one of the rumors that he's going to hear about that is there's this massive military force that is forming, that is headed right straight toward Jerusalem. Now, the Euphrates River right now is in the process of drying up. In fact, it is, as one historian said, it's affected a lot of things over there along that river. It's affected electricity, it's affected water quality, it's affected crops, it's affected production and distribution And the heat has been drying up the Euphrates. In fact, it's predicted that if it continues on the course that it is, it's going to be completely dry by the year 2040. Well, God is using heat to dry up certain parts of it, but that's not what's happening here. Because what's going to happen here is he literally is going to, in one moment of time, dry this thing up. And he's in the process of just kind of letting people get a glimpse of what his power is capable of doing. And this Antichrist is going to hear there are kings coming from the east. They join together and they're heading right here to Israel's land. Now, if we look at a map of the east of the Euphrates, what we would conclude is that would include China, Japan, India, Afghanistan, perhaps North Korea. And what is fascinating about this is Satan is confined to this earth so you would think you would think you would have a real unity among all these godless people. You have Satan and his demons confined to this earth. You have the Antichrist who's here. He's Satan's number one man you have the false prophet who's mentioned here. We'll meet him tonight. He's mentioned in the context. So you would naturally think that, well, if you got Satan and demons here, then all these other godless forces would just get along. All these godless forces would just have one happy existence. But see, what we learn here about Satan, he's not a unifier. He's a destroyer. He's not a peacemaker. He's a warmonger. Satan's not someone who likes life. He loves death. But what this also shows is Satan's not the one in charge of what is happening in the great tribulation. God is. And there are two specific reasons why those forces from the east are coming to Israel. Number one, because God is sovereignly working out the finale of his prophetic program. It's this sixth angel who's pouring out his wrath. We only have one more to go after this, and then the program of God is over. God clearly predicts that he's going to gather all nations of the world and bring them right into Israel's land to destroy them. There are a lot of references I've listed for you, but the one you might want to turn back to for a minute tonight is Zechariah 14. Go back to Zechariah 14 if you would. And here's one of the passages that predicts this very event. God will bring these nations right into Israel's land for the purpose of their destruction. In Zechariah chapter 14, In verse 1, we read, Behold, a day is coming for the Lord when the spoil taken from you will be divided among you, for I will gather all the nations against Jerusalem to battle. And the city will be captured, houses plundered, women ravished, half the city exiled, but the rest of the people will not be cut off from the city. Then the Lord will go forth and fight against those nations as when he fights on the day of battle. God says, there is a prophetic day coming when I'm going to bring all of these nations of the world right to this spot, and there I'm going to fight against them, and I am going to destroy them. Now, the act of drying up the Euphrates is simply a part of God's sovereign plan to get that done. He's going to dry up the Euphrates so that the nations can get there real easy. I mean, they could literally travel and they won't have to worry about how we're going to get across that massive river. They'll be able to walk across that and head toward the promised land. He'll direct the nations there. And the reason why he's going to direct the nations there is it's his sovereign plan. He's going to destroy them there. Now, Muslims have a whole different take on this. Muslims believe that there's coming a day when the Euphrates is going to be dried up, and they also believe there's coming a day when kings and rulers from the east are going to come into that part of the world, but what they're trying to put a spin on this to say is that the reason why the Euphrates is going to dry up is because there's gold in the bottom of the Euphrates, and all of the kings of the east are going to want that gold, so they're going to head toward this part of the world because they're going to go in the riverbed As it were, to find the gold and pick up the gold because of the wealth that's lying there in the bottom of the Euphrates. But that's not where they're going. They're not going into the Euphrates to mine gold. They're going into the Euphrates because they're crossing that land, headed toward the land of the Lamb and go to war against God. So there's the first reason that that is going to happen. Secondly, because God will sovereignly permit Satan to bring the nations from the east. Verse 13, I saw coming out of the mouth of the dragon, out of the mouth of the beast, out of the mouth of the false prophet, three unclean spirits like frogs. They are spirits of demons performing signs which go out to the kings of the whole world to gather them together for the war of the great day of God the Almighty. Now I want you to notice that we have this false trinity mentioned there in verse 13. You have Satan mentioned there who is the dragon. And then you have the beast there, who is the Antichrist. Then you have the false prophet, who is the one who promotes worship of the Antichrist and a worship of allegiance to the satanic man. All three of these beings are unclean, and they say unclean things. And what they do will be unclean things. There's not a clean word that comes out of their mouth. In fact, they're unclean demons like frogs that go out of their mouths. And I think The frog imagery means a couple of things. First, it means they're all unclean. Their speech is demonic. It's slimy. It's unhealthy. It's ritually unclean. You know, a frog is known for its noise that it makes. It's one of the things they're known for. In French, they're known for what they say they're croaking. They croak. In English, we say it's ribbit. They're known for saying ribbit or making a sound like ribbit. Keep in mind, if you will, that these are satanic political and religious leaders that are mentioned here where it says the unclean spirits are like frogs going out of their mouth. These are satanic political and religious leaders who are influencing world powers From God's perspective, their talk is nothing but frog talk. From God's perspective, it's a bunch of croaking ribbits. It's satanic swamp talk. And that's the kind of people, apart from God, who run the world. Those are the kinds of political leaders who get in charge when Satan is pushing his people to be in charge. When these kind of leaders get power, all they give you is a bunch of swamp talk. There's no truth in it. There's nothing edifying in it. There's no goodness in it. There's no thing that is God glorifying in it. So ultimately, what's going to happen here is Satan is being used by the Lord to use his swamp talk, frog talk, demonic talk to reach out to these other people and influence them to go to war against God. Second, they're being used by God for his sovereign purposes and destruction. Asaph uses the frog imagery when he says God sent frogs out to demonstrate his power and remind people that he was the sovereign God in destroying the Egyptians, and that literally is what God is about to do. He's about to destroy all those God mockers and Christ rejecters and Bible haters in the world. And what we conclude from Scripture, when it says Satan is this trio of unclean spirits speaking like frogs, is that what God is doing is he is actually sovereignly overseeing the speech of this unclean demonic trio, and he's actually using their unclean demonic speech to bring all people to an area that he can destroy them. See, we don't understand all the things that God does, but I tell you this, God is sovereign. Satan is using his demonic forces, and it looks like he's winning here. I mean, it looks like he's accomplishing what he wants to accomplish. He's affecting the world. He's reaching out to these other political leaders, and they're starting to move now and move toward this land of Israel, and he's using the demonic forces to bring them there to fight against God and against Jesus Christ. And you have the Antichrist who's ruling the world. Satan and his forces are confined to this earth. Demons are involved in just controlling everything that's going on here, causing people to move against Israel. But this is all happening because God says, this is my plan. Boy, that is good to remember. When you see a world that's like lost its mind, and it doesn't seem to be bringing logical choices and decisions into power, and you're getting a bunch of frog talk, What you need to remember is God's sovereign in this. It's his plan. It's his program. What he actually was doing was setting the stage for these people to destroy themselves. And according to verse 14, Satan and his demonic team are going to use signs and miracles to impress those powers. Now, we know what some of those signs and miracles are. Just back up to chapter 13 for a second. Go back to Revelation 13, and we know what some of those signs and miracles are. Verse 13 tells us that. He performs great signs so that he even makes fire come down out of heaven to the earth in the presence of men. And he deceives those who dwell on the earth because of the signs which it was given him to perform in the presence of the beast, telling those who dwell on the earth to make an image to the beast who had the wound of the sword and has come to life, and it was given to him to give breath to the image of the beast so that the image of the beast would even speak and cause as many as do not worship the image of the beast to be killed. I mean, he is demonstrating to the world that he has power. And he's killing people. He's causing fire to look like it's coming right down out of heaven. I mean, he's duping the world. But what Satan is really being permitted to do here is to lure people to their own destruction. We've pointed out many, many times, not only in this book of Revelation, but in our study of angelology and satanology, Satan is not the friend of anybody. It's God who wants the best for people, not Satan. Satan's out to destroy nations. Satan's out to destroy individuals. Satan does not want anybody happy, healthy, or holy. Satan does not want somebody fulfilled in life. Because they're in a right relationship with the Lord, Satan does not want people to enjoy life. That's why so often those connected to Satan and demons end up dead. I mean, Satan wants people destroyed. He doesn't want them saved. Satan is a being who wants people miserable and depressed. He wants them on medication for the rest of their lives, if he can do it. He's happy to see that. That's what Satan's after. He wants people to be a complete disaster. But what Satan doesn't realize is that God is still sovereign even in everything he does. But never forget that about him. It's God who wants the best for people. It's God who wants the best for you. It's God who can use you at the greatest level. It's God that can give you a fulfilled life, an enjoyable life. It's God. Satan can't do that. Now, the specific driving motive that is stated in verse 14 for this satanic action is he wants to gather up the whole world as he can and bring them to war of the great day against Almighty God. I mean, that is what his goal is. His goal is to gather these people up to bring them to a war that he knows he's not going to win. He knows he is not going to win this thing. That's how arrogant he is. He knows he's up against Almighty God. And he knows there's no way he can beat Almighty God. This is not Satan's triumph day. This is the triumph day of Almighty God. And when John describes him as the God, the Almighty, he uses a word that comes from two Greek words. The first word is pantos, which means all possible ways at all times and all events. He's Almighty God. All possible ways of being mighty he is. And the second word, kratos, refers to strength and power that's at the ultimate master level. So by joining these two Greek words together in composition, what we have here is the description of God that says, God is the most powerful being in existence in all possible ways, at all possible times, in every single event, in every single situation. He has total, complete, sovereign, dominant control. There's no being that is more powerful than Almighty God in anywhere, and any time, or in any circumstance. And what he's going to do here is he's going to allow Satan to use these signs that he can perform to lure people to their own destruction. Now, he's done that before in the scriptures. In 1 Kings 22, God permitted a deceiving spirit to entice Ahab to send him to his own death. God allowed a deceiving spirit, and he worked through actually false prophets. He said, go prophesy falsely. I'll give you permission to go prophesy falsely because he was literally going to kill Ahab. And so he allowed the false prophet just to do that. In Jeremiah chapter 50, there's a prediction there of the fact that God is going to set a snare for people and he's going to let them walk right into it. He's going to lure them right into it. And that is exactly what he's doing here. And the thing of it is, Satan and his demons know this about God. This is not a shock to them. I mean, they experienced the reality of this when Michael and his angels defeated Satan and his demons and cast them out of access to heaven. I mean, they've been confined to this earth ever since chapter 12, so Satan and his demons actually know we can't beat God. We couldn't beat him in heaven. We couldn't even beat his angels in heaven. And yet, still, they're going to gather these nations together to go and fight against God in a fight they know they're going to lose. And we learn a Pretty significant lesson here about Satan and demons. People who are satanic and demonic, they don't think rationally. They don't think realistically. They don't think truthfully. Satanic and demonic people are emotional. They're irrational. They think in fictitious ways. They're not truth setters. They're given over to delusional thinking, delusional action. That's the way it works. Satanic people that are being influenced by demons, they don't base decision on careful thought. They don't search the scriptures and pray about it. They base their decision on crazy feelings. Sometimes they don't even make logical sense. If Satan and his demons actually thought factually and truthfully about things, they'd realize, you know, this is an effort in futility. We're not going to beat Almighty God. When we can get all the nations of the world to come here to go up against the lamb, we're not going to beat him. They would realize we're going to lose this, but they don't even think in those ways. They're too arrogant, too satanic, too demonic, too proud to humble themselves to that truth. Now this war will be the war of the great day of God. And what a great day it's going to be. I can't wait for that day when the Lord Jesus Christ comes back and takes over this world. I can't wait for that. This world will deserve every ounce of wrath he pours on it. They have mocked him. They've mocked his word. They've mocked righteous things. We have things on ballots I can't even believe we're voting on. They're just so corrupt, and they're so foreign to the word of God and will of God. And God says, I'm just building this case here. I'm filling up this wine vat of my wrath, and then I'm going to get it fed up, and then I'm going to pour out my wrath. And we know that this is very closely connected to the coming of Jesus Christ, because what is said in verse 15? Verse 15 says, Behold, I'm coming like a thief. Blessed is the one who stays awake and keeps his clothes, so that he will not walk about naked and men will not see his shame. There are five statements that John makes here in recording what it was that he saw and heard. First of all, he starts off with the word behold, which means stop here, look at this, and see this see this. Take a look at this. Statement number two, I'm coming. I'm coming. That's a present middle indicative mood verb. What that means is it is a fact. Jesus Christ is coming back, indicative mood. It is a fact that he himself is coming, middle voice. And it is a fact, a futuristic event will happen in a real present time moment. And the Lord Jesus Christ is speaking and he's saying, Take a look at this because I tell you this. There is coming a day when I'm going to come back, I'm going to take over the world. His third statement is, I'm coming like a thief. That's what he says. He says, Behold, I'm coming like a thief. Now, I want to keep this in its context because Jesus, when he says here, He's coming like a thief, is making this statement as you're getting near the end of the Great Tribulation. So this doesn't really have anything to do with the church because the church is not in the Great Tribulation. And when Jesus uses this imagery, when he used it earlier in Revelation chapter 3, it had a completely different meaning than it does here. What it meant there was Christ would come to the church, and it did have a judgment theme. He would come to the church if his own family didn't start shaping up to be the kind of person they ought to be if they weren't getting interested in growing in knowledge of him and in righteousness. He would come to the people against the church and give them a judgment of weakness, sickness, and perhaps death if they didn't respond to him. So it did have a judgment theme, but this warning of coming as a thief in Revelation 3 has nothing to do with what's being discussed here in the tribulation. We who are believers in this church age are not looking for Jesus Christ to come like a thief. We're looking for a glorious appearing in the sky. That's what we're looking for. We're not looking for him to sneak in like a thief. We're looking for a glorious appearing of Christ at the rapture. In fact, Paul said, I'm looking for the blessed hope and appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior Christ Jesus. We're not looking for... Christ to come as a thief. We're looking for him to come in the sky in all of his glory and be our deliverer and savior and take us out of here. The apostle Paul used the same imagery concerning Christ coming in the great tribulation as a thief in 1 Thessalonians 5.2. And what Paul was using this imagery to prove is the church is not in the day of the Lord. That's nothing connected to the church. That's the way Paul used the phrase. Paul wanted those believers to understand the day of the Lord that features Christ coming like a thief is not something you need to worry about because you aren't going to be here. You're not appointed to wrath. You're going to be taken home to be with the Lord. You're going to be caught up to meet him in the air. So Paul's use of Jesus coming as a thief precisely corresponds to this moment in the great tribulation. When Jesus says he's coming as a thief, what he means is no one's going to be expecting me when you've got all these nations moving in across that Euphrates River and heading to the promised land, there's nobody there going to be expecting me to show up. Nobody's going to be expecting me to show up and bring death, destruction, and final judgment. But that's what's going to happen. I will come like a thief. Satan and his forces will appear to be running things. They'll appear to be dominating the world, and the powers of the east will be on the move. It'll look like things are all over. But Christ says, that's the moment. I'm coming back. They won't expect it. It'll be like a thief. I'll put an end to him. His fourth statement is, blessed is the one who stays awake. Verse 15 says, blessed is the one who stays awake. Now, I think this is great encouragement for that remnant that has survived to this point in the tribulation. Now, the point of this admonition is you stay alert and awake as to what is going on in the tribulation. We've already seen earlier they needed to get out of Jerusalem. Don't even go back and get a coat. You get out of there as fast as you can. When you see the abomination of desolation, which turns out to be the Antichrist, goes into the temple. He demands that he's worshiped as God. Jesus says to those Jewish people who look for his kingdom to come and be established. You get out of there as fast as you can. And he said the one who's going to be blessed on earth is one that will realize what's going on here, and they'll stay alert. They'll stay awake to what is going on. And what this will mean is a person is not in Jerusalem at this time, but fled the area. They didn't receive the mark of the beast. And they obviously were following the admonitions that were given by those two prophets and the 144,000 Jewish evangelists that were singled out in Revelation chapter 7, but there's a principle that we can glean from this, and that is stay awake and stay alert to this world. If ever there's a principle we can glean from this, it's, remember this, this world is not your friend. This world will try to pull you away from the blessings of God, so stay alert to that. Understand that. Stay committed to the word of God. Stay committed to learning and growing in the things of the Lord. Now, his fifth statement is, blessed is the one who keeps his clothes. Now, you may think that's kind of odd. I mean, that's what he says in verse 15, and keeps his clothes so that he will not walk around naked and men will not see his shame. I want you to remember this. When Satan and his demons are confined to this earth, nudity is going to be the norm. Now, nudity and immorality are intensifying right now on commercials, things that you just would never see 10, 15, 20 years ago. You never see these kinds of things, but it's intensifying right now. But when the church is gone, and the restraining ministry of the Spirit of God is gone, there is going to be an immorality and a nudity that will dominate the world, and there will not be any person or law enforcement agency that will be able to put a stop to it. Jesus Christ will have to put a stop to it. Now, we learn the halfway point of the tribulation before Satan was confined to this earth, that the world, according to Revelation chapter 9, but it's been a few weeks since we were there, but we learned there that the world was being dominated by murder, sorcery, immorality, and thievery. You had a bunch of liars. The church is gone. The restraining ministry of the Spirit of God is gone. So, this is even before Satan and his demons are confined to this earth, And by the midway point of the tribulation, you've got murder, sorcery, immorality, and thievery dominating the world. Now, Satan and his demons are confined to this earth. This earth will become the worst cesspool it's ever been. And depravity will reach its ultimate evil level until Jesus Christ stamps it out. And what Jesus is saying here, and I take these words literally. A lot of commentators say, oh, this is just figurative stuff. Keep your clothes righteous, stay righteous. I take this literally. Jesus is saying, you that will be blessed, you'll stay far away from immorality. You'll wear your clothes. You'll keep away from that stuff. You won't get involved in shameful things. Most people of the world are going to be doing that because there will be no restraints, Not when you have Satan and his demons that are confined to this earth. And as we near the rapture of the church, and I think we are near the rapture of the church, we may expect that more and more people are going to be drawn into these things of immorality and nudity. It's still true. Blessed are those who stay disciplined. Blessed are those who maintain godliness. Blessed are those who keep themselves pure and stay away from that stuff. Don't let it into your world. Stay clear of it. In verse 16, we read, And they gathered them together to the place which, in Hebrew, is called Harma-Gadon, Mount of Megiddo. Now, this area is the Mount of Megiddo, and there are two facts I want you to see. First of all, I want to talk about possibilities of the meaning of the word Harma-Gadon, what it means in Hebrew. It's stated that this is going to be the place which will become the crosshair place of all of this finale when Jesus Christ comes to stamp them out. It'll be at this place called Armageddon or Harma Gedon. In Hebrew, the word Harm Harma means destruction, and in Hebrew, the word Gedon means army. If you put those two words together, they mean destruction or slaughter of an army, and I think it's very fitting that this will be the place that will feature this final world war, and secondly, where Harma Gadon is located, the Old Testament location of this place is Megiddo. Now, Megiddo is a proper noun used for both a city and a valley. And it's a place, if you track it through the scriptures, that had some impressive battles that were fought in the Old Testament. For example, Dr. C.I. Schofield said this was the place of Deborah's victory, where she defeated Sisera. Then you have in Judges the place of Gideon's victory where he defeated the Midianites in this area. Then you had Saul's defeat there. Pharaoh defeated Josiah in 2 Kings in this spot. This is going to be the spot that will be the spot of the great final battle that will bring the wrath of God to the end. Megiddo is located east of the Jordan River in the northeast portion of the Promised Land. In the city of Megiddo is located about 70 miles north of Jerusalem. It was a strongly fortified city, elevated city. It was a majestic city back in its day. It's known today as modern-day Haifa, but it is still the ruins of this city of Megiddo. You can visit if you're in that part of the world. You can go see them because the ruins are still there. And this is going to be the general area where this is going to go down. And the valley is located about 50 miles north of Jerusalem. It's called the Esdralon Valley today. But this valley is about 14 miles wide, 20 miles long. And Napoleon called it the most natural battlefield in the whole world. Now this will become the central location where all of these armies of the world that have been demonically lured to come to this part of the world are going to come during the tribulation. This place will be the very place that's picked by God. It's the very place that has been prophesied by God, and God literally is going to bring nations to this place, and that's where he will slaughter them, because God is not just a God of love, but he's also a God of wrath. And don't kid yourself, the reason they're coming there is they are led by Satan to fight the lamb, and that's something they're going to lose. Nobody's going to beat the Lamb, the King of kings and Lord of lords. Kings of the whole world are going down to this slaughter. And in Zechariah, we get information about how this is going to affect Israel and what ultimately is going to happen we'll see later in this book of Revelation. The world does not realize how dangerous Satan and his demons are. I think we're going to go back to the days as predicted by the Lord Jesus. It'll be like it was in the days of Noah In the days of Noah, there was a great demonism that existed before the flood where God destroyed everything but a family and some animals. I mean, there was great demonism that dominated the world. I think you're going to see more and more of this stuff. You're going to see more and more thoughts of demonism and Satanism and movies that promote this kind of thing. You stay clear from them. You keep yourself disciplined. Don't you give in to that. Don't you watch those things. Don't you think on those things. And it will be like it was in the days of Sodom and Gomorrah. And the big theme of Sodom and Gomorrah, of course, was homosexuality. Look at what's going on. Just look. You look at that and you say, man, we are back to those times. It is getting like the days of Noah and like the days of Sodom. But here's the thing. No matter what's going on in the world, it is still under the umbrella of the sovereign plan of Almighty God. We are never told in the world or in the scriptures to fear Satan we are told in multiple passages, both the Old and the New Testament, fear the Lord. He's the one with whom people need to concern themselves because he's the one in the end who will win. Now he is offering, in this particular time frame, an amazing package of grace whereby any sinner can get into a right relationship with him through faith in Jesus Christ, as we saw this morning. Faith plus nothing. Faith in Jesus Christ will save a sinner. Don't fight against that theme. Don't reject that. That's the key to having a relationship with God. That's the key to you not experiencing the wrath of God. Let's pray. If you've never trusted Christ as Savior, invite him in to be your Savior tonight, right where you sit. Just handle it in your own words, but admit that you need him in your life and invite him to come into your life to save you. You can have him in your life as Savior, or you can face him as judge, and you don't want to do that. Our Father, we thank you so much for the word of God. We thank you for this book of Revelation. We do see the stage setting up for some of the fulfillment of these things right now. Those clouds are forming. We realize that, Lord, we'd be a fool not to see it. I pray that we will take some admonitions from this passage of Scripture. I pray that we would be people who will be alert and awake. Alert and awake to the scriptures, alert and awake to our own spiritual lives, alert and awake to the traps and the evil of this world. Keep us clean and pure, Lord. When it comes the moment, when we have the great privilege of seeing you in the sky, and we look forward to that moment soon, when we have the great honor of seeing you in the sky, I pray that we'll be pleasing to you, unashamed, and we'll hear, well done, good and faithful servants. In Jesus' name, amen.